The Police Federation official podcast. Hello and welcome to the Police Federation official podcast. This is your opportunity as members to put questions and issues to the National Chairman and a variety of guests. Over the coming months, expect some robust discussions and some straightforward answers. 2019, of course, marks 100 years since the Federation began and there's still lots of issues and topics to talk about and which the Federation wants to share with you, the membership. Everything from pensions to pay, campaigns to conduct will be on the agenda over the coming months. I should also remind you, you can still send in questions anytime via Twitter or email and we include as many as possible on future episodes. On this programme, along with John Apter, the National Chair of the Police Federation, is Alex Duncan, the National Secretary. Gentlemen, hello. 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 Good to see you. Well, let's start, I think it's reasonable, we start with pensions, really. I mean, that is the area. I mean, John Apter, I mean, this. I would imagine it's hard to go anywhere as the Chair, as the National Chair, and for this issue not to come up. Absolutely. And you've got a large number of people who feel really betrayed by the Police Federation, I get the anger. I'm affected by the pension. I'm in tapering. I'm in that transitional period. But when people turn on you and say, well, the only reason you support the pension changes, which I don't, I didn't, uh, is because you have an element of protection. Uh, that's offensive. Uh, and I know the previous uh, chairs and secretaries who were involved in the discussions, not the negotiations, but the discussions, they fought really hard for as many members as they could. This was imposed on us by the government of the day and uh, with very little redress for people like the Police Federation to come back with. So, yeah, I hear it all the time. Uh, and obviously what came out of the pension changes was a challenge by a group of police officers known as the, the Pension Challenge Group. You know, and I've said on record, I admire their tenacity. Uh, the Police Federation at the time took a legal position based on legal advice, uh, you know, and not legal advice from uh, a friendly solicitor down the road. I'm talking QC-level advice, which said the options of challenging the changes to the pension scheme uh, legally were was very, very small. We did everything we possibly could at the time. I'm clear from my position now as betrayed as I feel by the government, not by the Federation, by the government, because my pension, I pay into it, it's important to me for my, my, my life plans, and I feel let down and betrayed by them. But a number of officers decided to challenge uh, a part of the, well, it's actually the transitional arrangements themselves, and obviously that's all going through process at the moment, as well as the Fire Brigade Union, that's where the link comes with the Fire Brigade Union, you know, I'm not naive, Ian. I've been doing this job a, a long time, been a police officer for a long time. But it really does upset, sometimes offend me, when colleagues of mine, police officers, are so hostile and they genuinely think people in this building, the Police Federation, have actively gone out of their way to take away their pension. It's a perverse argument. It's an understandable one because there's lots of anger. Uh, and we're getting asked, Alex and I are getting asked all the time now, well, what next, what next, what next? Uh, and the reality is, is that there has been a uh, a win uh, by the judges. The judges are going through a, a similar argument and also the Fire Brigade Union. So the legal case for the pension challenge has been stayed. The government, I understand, are now seeking leave to appeal to the Supreme Court that judgment because the implications, understandably, for the government are considerable. Uh, And I've been the first to say a a win, obviously, for those involved in the challenge is, is a good thing. It's a positive thing. I'm being asked now by colleagues all across England and Wales, well, what does a win look like? 
We simply don't know. We don't know how the government are going to respond to it. We don't know how they're going to uh, react to it. We have to wait and see whether they get leave for appeal. Um, and, and Alex and I uh, are very firm of the view. You know, we're seeking fresh legal advice on the current situation as we are because originally this was five years ago uh, where all of this started. Time has moved on. But do I believe that we're going to get all of our members' pensions back? I, no, no, I don't. Um, and I say that with a heavy heart. It's not me being a defeatist. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's been a brutal situation that has been imposed on us by, by the government. But there is a sense out there, isn't there, Alex, that the FBU have done better out of this than police officers? If I look yeah. at some of the comments, no, Nomadic Plod, Tomo as well on Twitter wants to know if you'll say anything about the pension challenge, which Johnson's alluded to. After all the comments, you need to openly engage with officers more about it. Is that, is that a reasonable point? Right. Partly what this podcast is about, no, of course, no, is to do precisely that. Absolutely. And both John and I are always willing to engage and talk. I think, to be fair to our predecessors, they were willing to engage and talk. Um, sometimes there are challenges, I guess, in getting your message across, and hopefully this podcast will assist us in addressing some of that. I think it's important, building on what John said, however, to recognise that, you know, what a staff association, often some have different interests and different uh, outcomes will benefit them rather than others. So there's always going to be that weighing up game. At the time that we were given the choice of accepting transitional arrangements or not, over half of our members benefited from transitional arrangements, some obviously more than others because of where they were in service, but actually on the numbers game, given we were all being told, you're going to that new scheme effectively, do you want to all go immediately or do you want some of your members to actually have more of the more generous scheme? Actually, the numbers stacked up that more of our members benefited from taking the transitional arrangements. The danger at the time, actually, was if we'd said we don't want transitional arrangements, we think this is unfair, they'd have, you know, what was going to happen was you all go in the 2015 scheme immediately and then everyone loses because there is no pension challenge. It's important to note the challenge is not whether or not you could be moved into the new scheme. That is accepted by all sides you can be. The challenge is whether or not giving some people protection was fair or lawful or not. And the discrimination, if it is discrimination, and I say that because it's going to the Supreme Court and they'll have to make a decision on that, but if that exists, it only exists because some people were given that protection. So actually, the irony is, the ones who got transitional arrangements and protection have obviously benefited, and if the challenge is successful, that challenge only succeeds because of the transitional arrangements. So actually, the only way everybody wins is if the challenge succeeds and you had the other group who had transition and protection. So, you know, the Fire Brigades Union, interestingly enough, signed up and agreed to transitional arrangements and protection in exactly the same way as every other public sector union and the Police Federation. And then what happened was that they, um, when their members said, you know, the ones who hadn't benefited from it, said this is unfair, decided to get on board the challenge. And actually there has been some criticism of them in the courts as to why they're challenging something that they'd originally signed up to. Uh, and I can understand why the courts might find that a little bit difficult to understand. 
But it is worth noting that with the exception of the FBU, no other union has adopted a different position to us. And it's on the grounds that um, if some of your members can have a better deal, in an ideal world you have a better deal for everyone, but if actually you can only get it for some of them, do you refuse it and have everyone at the lowest possible position or do you take what you can when you can? So it's it's not a mistake on behalf of the Federation. It's that that you you took it to where you could logically take it we took it we did everything we could to try and secure uh, every individual staying in the current pension scheme when that was made uh, unclear and, and to be honest another suggestion i've read which again was not on the table and not an option was as if we could have taken the value or the cost to government of the transitional and protected arrangements divided it equally amongst all the scheme members and given everybody something that was not on the table. I should say, if you want more information on pensions, of course, pollfed.org slash pensions, and there's a lot of information on the website there. I would say, and just to finish off on pensions, do I think at the time um, we got the communications right? No, no, I don't. And, and we're, we're suffering as a result of that. I think we could and should have done things uh, better by explaining. But the problem is, even with Alex, uh, who's our, our lead in this area, explaining as he has, pensions are an incredibly complex issue. It's really hard to explain it, whether it's in a tweet or in a Q&A session. Uh, but we need to find ways, and this is, I think, a really good way of trying to get across the membership, the frustrations that we have, but also let's dispel some myths. Uh, this is not a gift where we could say, uh, no uh, government, we're not going to accept that, we'll accept this, we'll have that, we won't have that. It was imposed on us. We were in a real difficult place at that time with accepting the transition arrangements or rejecting it, and everybody uh, would be negatively affected. Let's just move on to your uh, well, your new roles, really, for uh, the last six months. If I was about to say, what have you been doing for the last six months? I didn't mean, what have you been doing for the last six months? Inter- out of interest, what have you been doing for the last six months? What's, what's happened, John, when you take over this role as the national chair? You were already in Hampshire, of course, but yeah, before well, it, this role. Yeah, it was a bit, a bit different for me because I, I was the chair in Hampshire, um, really enjoying what I was doing. I, I wasn't a member of the national board, which is the reps who work here at uh, headquarters. But because the rules changed, we've gone through a big period of change, then there was an opportunity for a directly elected uh, chair uh, from around the country, from the National Council. It gets complicated, but the council is primarily made up of chairs and secretaries from around the country and other uh, around across England and Wales, sorry, uh, as well as some other uh, colleagues. And I made a decision with the support of my family to go for the chair's position, elected by the members. Really proud and really pleased to be elected. Callum McLeod, the previous chair, a close dear friend of mine, a brilliant federation rep, but made his own decision not to stand. But I'm, st- I'm really pleased that he's still a part of the organisation because he's a fantastic asset and has done some brilliant stuff. But I was then thrust into this role, which no matter how prepared you think you are, you're never really prepared. I've known the organisation for many, many years, but being here without uh, working here previously... Is it just the, sh- the sort of sheer amount of issues, the kind of non-stop nature of the job, that from waking up, the inbox is loaded from the word go and it never empties throughout the day? Is it, is it that kind of thing? Yeah, it's, it's relentless. It is relentless. Um, but, you know, my, my sense is about very much about everything I do is about the members. 
uh, I've pledged to be the most visible chair that I possibly can be uh, on behalf of the members. It's about listening to them. We're not always going to agree. We're not always going to be able to achieve what the members want us to achieve. But I think if, if they know that people are there really getting stuck in and fighting for them, doing the very best they can, um, then I think the vast majority of our members r- really get that and buy into it. So it is relentless. And whether it's uh, you know building relationships with uh, people in the Independent Office of Police Misconduct or, or whether it's the uh, HMIC, FRS, um, or whether it's the Home Office, or I, I chief constables around the countries or PCCs, uh, I'm trying to build relationships with them to show them the great work that we're doing at the same time challenging where we have to challenge and one of the first things that Alex and I did was to um, take out a judicial review legally challenge the Home Secretary uh, about the the pay review um, process but that doesn't mean to say we don't have a a constructive relationship with the Home Secretary in fact this Home Secretary I've said and I stand by I think he's the first Home Secretary and certainly in my time in policing who actually gets policing Uh, we have a good relationship with him we don't always agree with what's going on, uh, which so, you didn't uh, quite, you didn't quite have with a previous Home Secretary, who's now the Prime Minister. And I, I'm not no. sure whether you're still on the Christmas card list at Number Ten, John. I but, didn't get um, a Christmas card you, this, uh, you, this You've year, been yeah. very vocal about what you believe has happened to the police service over yeah. the last few years, and of course, you know, one name does crop up: the current Prime Minister. And you know, you know what, Ian? The, the reason why I I get so emotional and passionate about it because I go out there and I I sit alongside my colleagues, some of whom are breaking because they have no resilience. The pressures that being placed on them and their, their colleagues is unbearable in places. The vilification in some media, um, no matter what they do, they can't win. And it's grossly unfair. And I always take this back to, um, you know, the, the, the tone taken by the current Prime Minister has been very personal. You, you can't stand on the steps of Downing Street in the event of a terrorist atrocity or, God forbid, the uh, the death of a police officer and say how wonderful policing is and we're the best police service in the world, but then refuse at every opportunity to give a meaningful injection of cash or support so that it can sustain us. It feels really personal. And for that, I can't forgive. Uh, and that's why I speak out when I can, because I believe in it i believe that this attack on policing over the years has been very personal and it's been led by the prime minister what about yourself alex you reported what last october that's right well i, I started uh, i took up the role on the first of october um i'd been on the national board for um about three years beforehand and before that i was in avon somerset as a branch secretary uh, so actually, when you're talking about pensions, uh, interestingly, neither John or I were here when those discussions were taking place, originally when they were looking to change the scheme. It's been extremely busy for me. Um, a lot of it is pension-related, but equally, um, having gone through a set of elections, which were our first elections after the reform of the organisation, uh, we had a lot of new faces, uh, both on the board and the council, who uh, obviously we've got to work hard to assist in coming up to speed. John and I um, share the view that we want the organisation to be as member-focused uh, and external member-focused as possible. We were both conscious that whilst the reforms were long overdue and necessary, by definition there was a lot of talk and a lot of energy in the organisation being spent on internal reform uh, and that could often 
look like we'd taken our eye off the ball with the members. I don't think anyone's commitment to the members wavered, but I do understand why it felt like there that. There was a perception of that. Um, so so is, yeah. that, is that part of the, the new team as it were that you want to change that john that you want to make it more inclusive that people feel that there's not this disconnect between them and us absolutely i I think for far too long uh, the the critics of the the center as it's called i was one of them in so and i don't i don't hide that fact but we're a different organization now there's a different feel and certainly my view and i know alex we we are absolutely joined at the hip on this is everything we do has got to be with the members um at the heart of our decision making the local branches across England and Wales, whether it's the big ones like the Met or the smaller ones or in, everything in between, everything's about the members. And my colleagues right across England and Wales are absolutely joined up to that. What we've got to demonstrate is what that looks like. And that's my job. That's about uh, the brilliant work that's going on every day, with our, not only with our members, but also our Fed reps. You know, and these are Fed reps out there. Alex and I are in privileged positions because this is our full-time role. You know, it's, it's a blinking hard job. But it's a privilege to be here. Many of our colleagues around the country are juggling a full-time police job, working days, lates and nights and fighting on a Friday, Saturday night with the drunks and the villains of this world. But then they're also a Fed rep, which is also very much a full-time role. And those individuals are the unsung heroes of the Police Federation. They are the backbone of the Federation. And I want to really shine a light on the brilliant work that they do, much of which is very much unseen. So uh, We should remind everybody as well, by the way, that you can send in questions for future episodes. So whatever the whatever the issue is, whatever it is you feel strongly about, anything you'd like to ask John or who, any of our guests that uh, crop up over the coming months, then Twitter and email via the website, etc. Let's move on to one particular area, legislative change for assaults now what's been achieved here john because certainly police drivers have been right at the center of this discussion and you know when i've chaired debates with the police i've been utterly shocked by just some of the stories and the facts that surround this area that members of the public wouldn't even think twice about because it doesn't affect them but in fact if you're a police driver life is not easy it's not well it's any emergency driver and to be honest and this this came the legislation for police dri- or emergency drivers has not actually changed yet that's still going through uh, the process and because of this uh, wonderful thing of brexit everything's a little bit slower um, but if, if i talk first of all if i may about the assaults the protect the protectors this has been something that I, I believe so strongly in and, and i'm really proud of We've been highlighting the risked colleagues for a number of years. I'm very proud of the work that I did in Hampshire, uh, but it's a seven-point plan. It's about how you look after colleagues who've been assaulted. It's not rocket science. It's real basic stuff, but we weren't looking after our colleagues. That's been adopted across the country um, uh, and and abroad in some places. And this is about uh, making sure that our colleagues have the best possible equipment, which is why I'm campaigning all the time for things like taser and spit guards and better training and, and so on. It's not all about uh, the sentences, but the sentences is a big part of it because there was certainly a culture, there still is a culture in parts, where being assaulted as a police officer, it's an occupational hazard, it goes with the job. Now, I know that policing is predictable and it's dangerous, but the minute we say that being assaulted is just an acceptable part of the job, then we accept it and we we might as well pack up. And then we were joined by um, uh, an MP from the Yorkshire area, uh, Holly Lynch, a Labour MP, who went out on patrol uh, with an officer and was so horrified by the level of violence that was being displayed, she actually dialed 999 from the back of the police car. 
That then evolved with the local federation, I have to say, into uh, this campaign for uh, better protection for officers through the courts. Because all too often my colleagues who have been assaulted, sometimes very badly, will see those offenders who have shown nothing but animal behaviour on the night of assaulting them. Then they're dressed up in their best suit in front of a magistrate or a judge, saying how sorry they are, it was the drink or whatever, uh, giving their sob story, and they get nothing more than a slap on the wrist. So we wanted to change that. And the challenge that we put in through the Protect the Protectors was to increase uh, the legislation for uh, the sentencing, sorry, for a, an assault on a police officer. Uh, I mean, it was only six months in prison. Um, we wanted to uh, we wanted to increase it to two years, but we got it to a year. There were some other things we wanted about aggravation around spitting, which didn't get through at the time. But this is the beginning. It's a massive success to get a change in legislation, which we've got. And also, I believe, start to change that culture very slowly. We're still not there yet, but it's better than what we had. The driving is separate. Uh, and again, the, the driving issue was really highlighted a number of years ago where a, uh, a traffic police officer was pursuing James Holden, his name. It's a, it's a well-known case. Uh, he was pursuing a, um, a serial criminal. Uh, somebody who'd stolen a vehicle from a member of the public was pursued through the streets of Portsmouth uh, in the in the in the eyes. I, I was a former traffic cop. Don't hold that against me. I was a tactical driver, so I used to do uh, pursuit dri- driving. I looked at the video. It was a textbook pursuit. That driver, not the villain, PC James Holden, was prosecuted for dangerous driving. And not only was he prosecuted, he ended up gripping the rail in a crown court. And it's only through thanks of the jury that he was he was acquitted. Uh, but that didn't stop him from having um, seven days of absolute hell where he thought his, his, his career was going to be over and his liberty taken. And when you look at the law, police drivers or, or any emergency drivers, they are not protected in law. So for, for anybody who's a member of the public listening yep, to this yep. and not within the, the police world at all, you go out there, you're chasing a criminal, as you just yep. described... You have no more rights then than I do if I was to go out there and commit uh, a speeding offence or jump a red light. And it should be pointed out, you're chasing the criminal in accordance with the training and the expectations of both the public and the organisation, and to be fair, the politicians, because that's what they expect police officers to do. So we're not we're not talking here about people who are have gone off and are mavericks and are doing things that they shouldn't be and putting people. This is what you've been trained to do. This is what you've been trained and expected to do. But the problem is that because of the way the law is worded, it makes no allowance for emergency service drivers actually acting in accordance with the training and the skills they have. They treat them exactly the same way as you know, Mrs. Megan's mm. pootling along to Tesco's. And, you know, by definition, if you're using a vehicle, so, for example, one of the things we're trained to do is on occasions to tactically stop a vehicle that's refusing to stop, and that might be by deliberately colliding with it. Um, and that, of course, by definition, if hell, if you judge that on Mr. or Mrs. Smith in the high street, if you deliberately crash into another car, people would say, well, that's clearly dangerous driving. This comes from Andy Howe on Twitter. She says, uh, when and how can the police get some correction to the constant annual real-term pay cuts that we've suffered year after year? Meanwhile, all the world and their sheep seem to be getting proper pay rises. What's going on there? Well, um, 
I think I'm with most of the question. I'm not sure what the deal the sheep are getting, but um, I, I do. That abs- a whole new expression is just a world of these sheep. <laughs> Um, I think this links in very much uh, in some ways into why have we taken the challenge? Why why are we judicially reviewing um, the latest decision in respect of the pay review body's recommendation? Uh, And the reason we're judicially reviewing it is that we share the frustration and the anger that I think lies behind this question. Uh, There is no doubt that uh, when the pay review body commenced with the police service, um, because of the timing, of course, they were, for the first few years, given a quite clear steer by government that the maximum they could award was 1%. So this so-called independent body that was supposed to weigh up the evidence from each party uh, was already being told, as long as your answer equals 1 or less than 1, I'll let you be the judge of whether that sounds like a particularly convincing and fair process. Uh, Once we move forward from that, so the last two recommendations that have come out from the pay review body, uh, both of which have then been varied by the um, Home Secretary at the time, two different individuals, but actually it's their offices. I say varied by the Home Secretary at the time, and that brings us to what the challenge is about. Our interpretation of the legal position is it's for the Home Secretary to consider and either accept or reject the recommendation that comes from the review body. What became obvious on this occasion is that there was a leaked letter that came out of um, the Home Secretary's department. I'm not saying the leak did. The letter was written by the Home Secretary to the Chancellor and Prime Minister, which made clear that the Home Secretary's view was that the recommendation of the review body should have been accepted in full um, and that it appeared quite clear it was the decision of the Chancellor and the Prime Minister not to. That, we think, doesn't comply with the law. There's a couple of things for us. Uh, On the basis that we've been unhappy with what we feel is almost lip service to our evidence and our recommendations to the pay review body. So our falling out is not with the review body because we believe they have considered it and we believe their recommendations demonstrate they've considered it. But we believe that that becomes pointless if every time the government get it, they substitute it for something they prefer. You may as well just not bother with any kind of process and say, pick a number you like, government, and tell us what it is. So that's part of the problem. Um, And then the other part of the problem is that um, we have had associated issues and difficulties with a lack of what we would call meaningful consultation and negotiation processes across a whole range of issues. And this is, in a sense, of saying, you know, enough is enough here. We're a body of people who have got very limited rights Um, and therefore we should have meaningful routes to negotiate and consult. And we don't believe, since you've made the changes, that those rights have actually been respected. And if we don't take a stand now, you know, we'll just go on being ignored and our views uh, sort of pushed to the one side. Uh, In answer to the question uh, um, of when are we going to get a real-term pay rise, that's a bit of a, you know, give me a crystal ball because you're asking me to predict... Um, you're asking me to predict the outcome of the next pay review process. Uh, I think the general movement within the public sector is more promising than it has been for some years, if you look at some of the pay settlements elsewhere. Having said that, 
Um, we're entering into an unknown world, dare I mention the Brexit uh, word and the potential impact that could have on the economy and budgets. From our point of view, it won't surprise you that we will be putting a very robust case in and we're in the process of pulling that together at the moment, arguing for a fair pay rise. Uh, we believe that it's long overdue. We believe we've more than taken our level of pain under the guise of austerity and year-on-year pay cuts are totally untenable. We are acutely aware of the impact that is having on our members. But can I predict how the government are going to react? Uh, sadly not. Just on that, Ian, the, the reality of this is, in real terms, our colleagues have had a 18% pay cut. Uh, there are very few professions where you take such a cut and it doesn't have an impact. And in reality, what that looks like is that we have officers who I know personally are relying on charities to feed their kids. Um, we've had uh, officers or an officer I know of has been evicted from a property because she can't afford to pay the bills, but in emergency bed and breakfast. These are police officers. Uh, it's like going back to the 70s. Uh, so the, the reality of the financial burden that they're facing is very real. Um, they are uh, looking for uh, a government who actually doesn't treat them with contempt and, and recognise them for the job they do. And look, I, I'm sure that other people listening to this will say, well, what about the nurses and the firefighters? I, I agree, we've all been treated appallingly. But as Alex says, my, my colleagues have been uh, really singled out because it's not only the pay freeze and the pay cap it's the increase in pension contributions, it's the uh, increase in other taxes and allowances, and it's the reduction of other things that they used to get, which they don't no longer receive, that has meant this perfect storm has created, for, for many, a real financial crisis, which for police officers it is, it is really biting them hard. Uh, I'm just aware of time, gents, but we do want to get a couple more points, and if we can, uh, Winston Smith on Twitter says, Will the Federation now support a ballot for industrial rights? Right. Well, this is uh, this is a real contentious issue, and, and rightly so. It's something that when I was going for the, through the election period, I spoke to a lot of officers or right across uh, many forces. And a number of years ago, uh, the Police Federation, uh, on the back of officers feeling really let down and betrayed by the government and the pain that we were going through, we had a discussion on employment rights. And let me make it clear, this is not about the right to strike. I hear so many people say, oh, John Apter's called for a right to strike. We will never have it. We will never have the right to strike. Many listening to this will say, rightly so. This is about employment rights and what they look like. So what I'd made a pledge um, during the election was during my tenure of three years, uh, I want us to have a meaningful, grown-up and sensible debate about what employment rights actually look like. Because for, for non-police officers listening to this, Ian, police officers are servants of the Crown. We don't have employment rights. Um, we have police regulations and we have warrants, so we're servants of the Crown. We're, we're, we're different. I've heard many of my colleagues say, well, they think that they'd be better with employment rights. Well, that comes with consequences. And a number of chief officers, chief constables around the country would like us to have employment rights. When the bosses start wanting to have something you have to wonder why. So um, so I'm not going to promise that we'll have a ballot, but I have promised that we'll have a debate. And if that leads to something more, then that's down to the membership. But we've got to engage with them. We've got to explain it in a really meaningful way about what things look like. Do you like think most to. officers want the right to strike? The right to strike. I, I think now, certainly a, a litmus test for me is when I speak to younger in-service officers, and um, probably more of them are saying now, well, yes, I, I, I would if I could. 
probably mid-service and older service officers are saying, well, that's not what I joined for. And actually, if push come to shove, I, I couldn't walk away from the duty that I've sworn to uphold and so on. Um, it's a real emotional uh, uh, subject, a contentious one. Well, it's frustration. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of frustration. It, 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 it's, I mean, you hear a lot of people will say, I'd like the right to strike, I'd never use it. Yeah. Which in itself, you start to say, well, what, what's the purpose of having it if you'd never use it? Um, if you want the right to strike, it must at least be an occasion when you would. But I think, you know, this is on year-on-year real-term pay cuts, uh, reduction in resources, so you feel you're being asked to do a lot more. Um, your shift patterns are probably looking a lot worse. Your work-life balance has gone effectively south. The difficulty is, as John says, and, and where the Federation got it wrong the last time, was that you know when you go out and you ask a, a very simple, almost put a cross in the box, yes or no type question to a group of people who don't, in, in the nicest possible way, fully understand what's a very complicated area of law, um, and they're feeling emotive and let down uh, about a decision the government had made, ironically, about pay at the time, then you'll get a certain answer, which is what was achieved. You know, Had we asked the question, would you like the Federation to fight for the right for you to be made redundant if required, I suspect we'd have had a landslide saying no. Because uh, that's, you know, they're the downsides that come. You know, police officers, uh, there are some downsides of being regulated but the good news is none of us go to bed at night worrying about being made redundant tomorrow. Here's a challenging one. This comes from James Elton, who says, can psychiatric or psychological evaluations or trim be compulsory rather than officers simply being offered this? And it's it's worth saying, John, that it's been a pretty challenging time for many families because some police officers have taken their own life over the last couple of months. And we've sadly seen these stories over the Christmas period. Yeah, it's... Um it, it is desperately sad, and certainly the the number of uh, police officers, or indeed staff, anybody working within policing, the um, the pressures, um, whether it's work related or home related, but the pressures are really starting to surface. They're starting to bubble, and and I think part of that is because we are uh, culturally, as an organisation, we are far more likely to put our hands up and say, "I'm having a problem, a mental health problem," than we were years back. And forces, they're not quite there yet, but forces are doing much more awareness and treatment and support. Nowhere near near enough. Should it be mandatory? Um, Well, for some roles within policing, rightly so, um, it is mandatory to have a psychological assessment, whether that's dealing with uh, child abuse or or in other other areas of policing. I know certainly when I was operational, I was a family liaison officer um, and worked in a road death investigation team. Um, which is a, an incredibly challenging role and I was psychologically evaluated and every year I would have an assessment. I used to call it my check-up from the neck up every year to make sure that I was fit, fit for the role and some of my colleagues failed that process uh, and although they would be uh, really um, angry that they were being moved from that role, it was protecting them. I don't think we've done that well enough. I, I, I don't think for general policing we should uh, insist on mandatory psychological assessments because uh, I, I don't think that's necessary. What we need to do is make sure that the support in place for colleagues is much better, much more accessible. And I think the Police Federation uh, can certainly play its part, and we are. We are doing some really good stuff about not only highlighting the the pressures on our colleagues, which is leading to, in some cases, mental health crisis, but also putting some things in place to offer that support. We have a welfare support programme, and we know that has saved lives.
That's the Police Federation doing that, we, and we know it saved lives. And a final question. This is looking ahead, really. Officer Welfare, Sergeant Chris Harris says, can you touch on some of the common examples that officers are unaware of with regards to the Did You Know campaign and Know Your Rights campaign? For There might be officers listening to this and not even aware of the campaign, so it's worth just touching on that. Yeah, again, it was something that I promised during the election. I used to get so frustrated when, um, when first of all, bosses within policing would uh, would insist that colleagues did certain things, whether it's duty changes or or, or worked for no overtime, uh, almost like they were doing them a favour. Well, police officers are governed by police regulations, and they are uh, there are rights. They are not to be cherry picked. They are there to protect officers. We've we've worked hard for them over many many years, uh, and they've been watered down in places. So my pledge was: we are going to educate officers and indeed bosses within policing to say, you need to know your rights. You need to understand uh, what police regulations means to you. And we've started that campaign, and colleagues can find it on the on the website or it's on Twitter. hashtag Did you know or hashtag Know your rights. And it's it's not going to be a campaign because it's not short lived. It's going to run for as long as I'm chair and whoever takes over from me, or hopefully I'm re-elected. And it will just inform and educate colleagues on a wide range of things. First of all, about their rights and what it means to them, but also about what the federation's doing for them as well. I did a did you know thing on Twitter, thousands of hits uh, about um, how uh, taser data is captured because it was being misinterpreted in the press. There's a lot of things that we can do with this campaign, and I would urge colleagues to read up on it. Um, there's some really good documents on the website or on the on the local Facebook pages of, of federations across England and Wales. Um, there's one, a quick reference guide. Um, it, it's quite a few pages, so it's not very quick, but compared to police regulations, it's a really good piece of information that every police officer should really have a have a look at i'd urge journalists to look at that as well i've lost kind of how many journalists i've had to explain that police officers did not use a taser nineteen thousand times no, or no. fire one absolutely. but in fact you know just maybe removed oh. from a holster or whatever absolutely yeah so it's that sort of misinformation as well and things yeah like that. as well as that so yeah, we're adding that and also the, the work that we're doing as a federation um, that is it for this episode we will discuss on the next one um a hundred years of the police federation neither of you of course were founder members but um, <laughs> we can find a few that were <laughs> there might be one or two at the back that were a reminder if you have a question that you want to put to john on the next episode then make sure you follow the police federation on twitter you can also email to uh, the main issue of discussion on episode two will be conduct so it makes sense that phil matthews who's the conduct lead for the federation will be on the program as well and again we'll try and cover as many issues as possible i know john that you want to urge members to get those questions into us whatever they are however robust uncomfortable whatever nature they happen to be absolutely there's going to be multiple ways that we want to communicate with members i, I try and get out across the country but i'm only one yep. person engage with your local federations they're doing some brilliant stuff engage with this podcast throw the questions in and we'll do our best to get through them also important to make sure you subscribe to this podcast so make sure you get each new episode automatically on your phone or computer hit the subscribe button now and of course you can listen via the federation website too until the next one goodbye